I'm Linus. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As he kept his promise, how has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer, here on Kids Talk Church History. Around the time when John Wycliffe and Jan Hus shook the Western church by challenging the authority and traditions, a lesser, a lesser known monk, something similar in Ethiopia. He was known as Abba Estefanos, or in English, Father Stephen. My name is Trindy, and I'm 16, and I live in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Linus, I'm 13, and I live in San Diego, California. I am Lucas, I'm 15, and I also live in San Diego, California. So we talked about Ethiopia in one of our first episodes and how the gospel was taken to Ethiopia by two young men from Lebanon, Fermentius and Edusius. Yeah, Ethiopia is one of the first nations to actually become Christian. Some say it was the first. The church there developed into what we now call the Orthodox Church, led by patriarchs instead of a pope. During Estefano's life, the Church of Ethiopia Ethiopia was under the Coptic branch of the Orthodox Church. So how was Estefanos a reformer? He had some similarities with Martin Luther because, like Luther, he continued to be unsatisfied with his own efforts and kept trying to do more pilgrimages, penances, and fasting. In fact, many of the other monks thought he was exaggerating, including his superiors who rebuked him several times. When he was around 30, he was ordained as a priest, but not everyone accepted his teachings, especially when he started to question some of the church's recent traditions. For example, bowing in front of images of Mary, angels, and saints. He thought that only sh- that should only be done before God, that we should only bow down to God. I have also read that he also taught that salvation was God's gift of grace, while the Ethiopian's church or the Ethiopian church strongly believed that our works affect, affect our destiny after death. It sounds like he was persecuted. Yes, especially because Emperor Zara J- Jacob had just made the veneration of Mary central in the Ethiopian religion. So first, Estefanos was imprisoned for three years, and finally he was tortured and killed. While, like Wycliffe and Hus, he had a group of followers that continued to grow, and they were known as the Stephanites. And is that only because he didn't think people should bow in front of Mary and the saints? There was a lot more. Um, The Stephanites went against other traditions they considered unbiblical. For example, they denied the presence of the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. You all know the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible, right? God, How God told Moses to build it and gave specific instructions. It was going to be a sign of God's presence in the temple and in Israel. And the Israelites carried it for 40 years in the desert. There are a lot of stories in the Bible about the Ark. You may know some. Yeah, I, I recall the story of Uzzah who touched the Ark and died. Or the story of the Philistines, who thought they had captured the Israelites' source of power when they stole the Ark, and instead they had to return it because the Ark kept bringing plagues and destroying their idols. Well, according to the long-standing Ethiopian legend, the Ark was brought to Ethiopia by King Menelik, who was said to be the son of King Solomon. Today, this Ark, whatever it is, is kept Um, Under lock in the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion in Aksum, Ethiopia, where only the guardian of the Ark can see it. 
I wonder if any Indiana Jones knows that they have the Ark. <laughs> well, obviously not. All right, know. but I read that the other Ethiopian churches still keep a copy of that Ark called Tabat. Yeah, the Stephenites uh, contested that legend, and it was a huge deal because this also meant that the Ethiopians' kings were not direct descendants of Solomon. It sounds like the Roman Catholic Church saying that the Pope is the successor of Peter's authority as head of the church. Yeah, and Estefanos didn't make matters any better when he told King Zara Jacob that the word of the heavenly king cannot be presented by the prevented by the earthly king, but an earthly king can be prevented by the word of the heavenly king. And I've also read that Zara Jacob, and we'll say it like that, we'll ask our guest if that's the right way to say it, but that he didn't kill Estefanos right away because he knew that Estefanos was looking forward to dying as a martyr. Instead, he tortured him for years, keeping him in constant pain. Yikes. I've read, and I've read somewhere that Zara Yaakov is considered a saint in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. That's crazy. He and his men were very cruel, with even with the followers of Estefanos. I've read about some horrible tortures that I don't even want to repeat. But now let's turn to our wonderful expert, Reverend Aaron Clauset, Eric Clausen, who runs a podcast named Faithful Forebearers and has an episode about Estefanos. Reverend Clausen has actually been here before for our episode on Frumentius and Ediasis. Reverend, Reverend Clausen, thank you so much for joining us again today. We really appreciate it. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I'm really excited to talk about Estefanos. And I'm really excited you guys are have found him and discovered him and have this interest too. He's he's super fascinating. Yeah, um, you've heard you've heard our introduction. Is there anything mm-hmm. that you'd like to add or maybe correct? Uh, no, I think you guys covered it really well. Um, I know one of the questions that we're going to be getting to is a little bit of his early life. Um, what exactly was his early life like? So I can fill in a little bit about that right now. So Estefanos was born in a family of warriors. And actually, his father was a well-known soldier, um, but he was killed before Estefanos was born. And so it was assumed by his family, he's going to carry on the family tradition. He's going to be a great soldier, too. He even was born with a, a name that is uh, something like the prowlness or the prowess of a lion, which pretty cool name. Everyone thought, yeah, he's going to go on to be like his dad. But he ended up being a shepherd for a while as an adolescent. And as a shepherd, he started to have a feeling of a connection with people like Moses from the Bible. In the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, he would hear stories, especially from the Old Testament, uh, and he felt this feeling of connection with Moses and David and these shepherds, and he wanted that connection with God. And that passion led him to learning more and more biblical stories, memorizing the Psalms and things like that. And pretty soon, it was clear he wanted to work in the church. That's what he wanted to devote his life to. And his family tried to convince him otherwise. He said, no, you're a soldier. Come on, go be a soldier. But he said, no, this is what I want to do. And actually there was a heartbreaking moment. His mom really didn't want him to go, um, but basically said, listen, mom, this is what God's calling me to do. And you need to find peace in that and find peace from God that this is what I need to do. And she ended up finding peace with that. Um, So that's kind of how he ended up in that, in the service of the church. So, So uh, yeah, we were talking about uh, Zara Jacob. Is that the correct yes. way to say it? Uh, Zara Jacob, I think, is uh, the pronounced way, the better way. I'm not 
I'm by no means an expert in Ethiopian pronunciation, and I have Ethiopian and Eritrean friends that I have to ask. And then they have to repeat it again, like, no, no, it's like this. And I try to say it, and they're like, whatever, close enough. Um, <laughs> but Zeri Jakob is about as good as I can do. Um, but okay. yeah, he's a he's yeah. a really interesting figure. And I actually have a whole podcast episode on him because he is a fascinating character on his own. Uh, but certainly, as you guys have noticed, pretty flawed. Like, the guy could be very cruel and very despotic. But he's still remembered positively in Ethiopia. Um, which seems kind of weird. But if you think about it, a lot of the kings, like take someone like Solomon, Solomon did some pretty nasty things too. And so did King David, but we still remember their, the good things that they did. And they're still kind of remembered as good kings, um, even though they had some pretty dark sides. And the same is true with Zerah Jacob. He had some pretty dark sides, um, but he also, there's a lot of positive things that he did. And so uh, relating to that, the Eth- all the Ethiopian kings claimed that they were direct descendants of King Solomon. Uh, yeah. How did they convince the people, right, of that? Yeah, so that tradition actually doesn't start until the 1200s AD. Um, before that, no one in Ethiopia, or at least we don't have any record of anyone in Ethiopia making that claim. And that claim starts when a new dynasty took over. So there was a nobleman. Uh, and I believe his name was Amlek, and he ends up deposing the current king and becoming the new king. And he says, hey, actually, my family were the original kings and were descended from the first Christian king of Ethiopia, and that was Izana, and that was the guy that Frumentius, uh, the first missionary, worked with. He said, we're descended from him, and oh, by the way, he's also descended from King Solomon, because the queen of Sheba, who is mentioned um, in Kings, the book of Kings, they say Sheba is actually Ethiopia. And so she went to him uh, and they had a son together. They came back. So that's where the royal line comes. And it's really interesting. Modern Ethiopians absolutely are committed to this. In fact, even some Ethiopian Protestants still say, oh yeah, that's probably true. Um, Because there's one phrase in the Bible. It says that Solomon gave her whatever she wanted. And they say, what more would she want than an heir, and especially an heir through King Solomon? Also, I think they figure Solomon had like 700 wives. So what the heck? There's a high probability she was one of them too. Um, So they make that claim. But like I said, that claim doesn't show up until the 1200s. And there's a book called the Kebra Nagast that they'll point to and say, well, see, it's in this book. But that book showed up at the exact same time that this claim showed up. So it seems likely... This book probably exists to legitimize that claim. But it's absolutely something that Ethiopian uh, Orthodox believers and some even Ethiopian Protestants will, they still make that claim. But it's, there's no clear evidence, just an 800-year-old tradition. Um, We mentioned that the Ethiopian church believes or holds that they have the Ark of the Covenant. So what what do they do exactly with the Ark? Do they just keep it and make it? I don't know. Do they just keep it? <laughs> well, you guys saw Indiana Jones. You can't open it. Like everybody knows that. Um, but yeah, it's it's this old tradition. There's just one person has it. There's one guardian who's a monk at the church, and that's their lifelong goal or lifelong duty is they just take care of it. And when he dies, he either has made a successor, or if he hasn't made a successor yet, they uh, elect a new person, and that's their job. And they keep it hidden. He's the only one that can see it. 
Uh, although there is record of a British officer during World War II who was there who says he saw it and he figured it was probably from the Middle Ages. Um, but they don't show it to anybody, so so we don't know. But that claim also doesn't start until, I forget exactly when. I don't know if it's exactly in the 1200s, but it's in the 1200s or later that that claim first starts appearing. Uh, and that church that it's housed in was destroyed twice since it was first built in the 400s. So, you know, if it was destroyed, what, what happened to the Ark then? And it's not clear. But again, it's a claim that Ethiopians are pretty proud of. So I wouldn't recommend arguing with an Ethiopian Christian about it because it's like, it's a source of pride to them. But again, probably not incredible evidence for it. And then just to explain for our listeners, there was only one type of church in Ethiopia at that time, right? Right. So at this time, all Christians in Ethiopia are part of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Um, and that's it. And sometimes it's called the Ethiopian Orthodox Church Tawahedros. Um, I think that's right. Shoot, that might not be right. Ethiopian Orthodox Church. That's the important thing. Um, but yeah, they okay. would all be part yeah. of that same church. Because uh, I'm asking, because some people today might think, uh, oh, there's just a church right down the street. Why, don't, why doesn't he just go to a different one, right? Right. There's only one church, right? <laughs> right. That's it. That's really it. And the church is connected with the state. So if you have a rival church, that would be a direct threat to the state's church or to the official church. And so, right, you couldn't just go down the street, hey, I'm tired of this Orthodox church. I'm going to go to the Catholic church or the Protestant church. That, that was it. And you start teaching something else, that's a direct threat. And just like he was, you'd be imprisoned or killed for it. I'm guessing that that meant that the, the king had a lot of power over the church. Yeah, he absolutely did. So one of the things that the king did, um, so the kings, um, they would actually appoint the um, bishops, which were called abunas, and the abunas would crown the kings. So there's kind of this reciprocal relationship. Uh, and also, especially since the Solomonic dynasty was claimed, there was this idea that because we're descendants of Solomon, we it's our job to protect the church. And so they were very involved with what the church taught. They kind of saw themselves as the defenders of the faith. So I've read that most of Estefano's books were burned. And so are there any left? And have they been translated into English? Yeah, so there's only one, at least one that I know of. Um, and that was written um, by one of Estefanos' followers. And it's just a story of his life. And uh, there is an English translation. It's not easy to get, um, but uh, it does exist. It's about 50, 60 pages, but it just kind of lays out what his life was. And that's basically where we get all the information that we have. There's not even that much information in the records of uh, Zara Yaakov's reign, which there's some records, but even to him, to Zara Yaakov, this guy wasn't that big of a deal. So pretty much it all comes from that and everything else was burned. And it was burned by Zara Yaakov, but also about a hundred years after this, um, there was an invasion by uh, Muslim forces that destroyed about 75% of all Ethiopian literature. And so there's a lot of stuff that probably would exist, but it was destroyed when that happened, which is a real tragedy. So the I've read that the ancient or some kind of language in Ethiopia was Ge'ez, is that right? I think it's Ge'ez, but again, Ge'ez. I'm okay. I'm not great at my pronunciation either. 
Okay. Is, is the Ethiopian church still holding services in Ge'ez? And then, if so, does anyone really speak Ge'ez today? Yeah, so nobody really speaks it today. And it's I think it's really similar to Latin in Europe. So just like Latin, once upon a time, everybody spoke it. Um, but now nobody speaks it, and only, you know, Latin students and uh, classical school teachers and Catholic priests learn it. And Ge'ez is the same way. So unless you're a student of history or a professor or an Orthodox priest, you're not going to learn Ge'ez. Uh, nobody is speaking it with their family. But uh, to a standard Ethiopian Orthodox believer, they're going to know some phrases in Ge'ez because it is the language of a church service. You're still going to use that language. So I think, yeah, it's super similar to how we view Latin would be how they view Ge'ez. We've been studying some medieval reformers in Europe like Wycliffe and Hus. We've learned that they're not the only one, that they were not the only ones protesting. Um, there are many protesting voices during the Middle Ages. Was Estefanos unique in his protesting? Well, he was definitely unique in Ethiopia. Um, one thing, Ethiopia was very isolated from all other Christian nations at the time, which makes it really interesting. You had several Muslim kingdoms separating them. So while maybe there was a little bit of interaction, there was not very much. So he was unique. He probably didn't know about Wycliffe and Hus. Um, so he is a little bit unique. But I think you're right that he's not unique in that there were other voices. And actually, I think with Jan Hus and Estefanos, there's incredible similarities. Um, the way that, this, that they were treated, the same issues that they had with the church, uh, and kind of the reasons that in the end they were just killed instead of their claims were taken seriously. There's all sorts of really close similarities. And they're only about 30 years apart, but they probably had absolutely no knowledge of each other, um, which is a shame. I mean, they know each other now, and uh, they probably are, have been swapping a lot of stories for a while. But yeah, here on this earth... Um, yeah, they didn't know about each other at all. And as far as we know, in Ethiopian Orthodox history, there's no one like him who had the same issues, at least not for 400 years. No one is going to have the same issues that he had. So I've read that Estefano's movements were completely crushed and that the Ethiopian church still considers him a heretic, while Zara Yaakov is considered a saint. So how do they justify that? Yeah, it seems pretty messed up doesn't it? Um, well, as I mentioned before, Zarya Cub's super interesting. Um, and a lot of things that he did were very good for the Ethiopian church, or at least strengthened the Ethiopian church and strengthened the Ethiopian kingdom. So a lot of people look back at him and say, well, look at all these great things that he did. And one of the things that he did is there was actually a, a split in the Ethiopian church that had been going on for about a hundred years before and it was really interesting. It was about this um, guy named Ewostatewos. Um, and that one I've been practicing because that was a tough one to pronounce. Um, but he believed that you should observe Sabbath on Saturday, not Sunday. Uh, and he believed that you needed to, Christians should observe more of the Jewish rituals and Jewish laws of the Old Testament. And so there's this big split in the Ethiopian church for about a hundred years over this. And Zarya Cub comes along and he figures out how to bring the two groups back together. And so finally there is like this peace and reconciliation and Zarya Cub is so excited. Finally, we're getting the church back on track. And then this monk comes 
and says, hey, you can't be worshiping Mary. You can't be doing all these things that are not found in scripture. And Zarekab's like, I already fixed this problem in the church. I'm not dealing with these new problems. Let's just get rid of this guy. I don't even want to listen to what he has to say, um, which is not to absolve him of what he did, but you can understand a little bit more. And actually, when you read about Jan Hus, a really similar thing happened in Europe. There had just been a time where there'd been three popes and finally this three popes at the same time. And this council comes together to say, hey, we're going to solve this. We're going to fix it. And then Jan Hus is there and he's got all these issues and like, we can't even, we don't even want to deal with him. We, we solve the three popes issue. Let's just get this guy out of here. Kill him if we have to. And it's such a tragedy um, that in both these cases, there's these two guys who are so brave and so genuine and have such real issues. And kind of because the authorities are tired, they just don't have time to deal with them. And so they kill them. So I know that you devoted an episode of Faithful Forebearers on uh, Estefanos, right? Which is available on all major podcast streams, right? That is that is correct. Thank you. Right, right. So uh, what were your thoughts when you did that? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really fascinating, uh, but it's tragic, right? This guy who's so brave, who's so committed, who has a lot of beliefs that are really similar to my beliefs. I'm a Lutheran pastor. Um, that he ends up getting killed and like his movement gets crushed. I'm like, where's the happy ending here? Um, but I think there is a happy ending and there's a lesson from it. And the lesson is we're not called to be successful as followers of Jesus. We're called to be faithful. Um, and God's going to do, God's going to be in control of the consequences, not ourselves. And now in Ethiopia, there's a huge Protestant church body. In fact, the largest Lutheran church body in the world is in Ethiopia. Uh, I think there's like twice as many Lutherans in Ethiopia as there are in America. And that's just Lutherans. And there's all these other Protestant groups. It may have taken 400 years, but now these groups look back at Estefanos and like, hey, you know, there was a very old Ethiopian tradition of reform and of these evangelical ideas. Um, so I think you know, after 400 years, he is justified and we do see success and what he did wasn't in vain. And it's really similar with Jan Hus. Uh, here's a guy who it seems like they kill him, he dies and for a hundred years, nothing happens. And then a hundred years later, Martin Luther comes along and realizes everything that Jan Hus said was true. And it's all incredibly important. Um, and he's justified. So I think for the lesson for me, for Estefanos is you don't know what God's going to do with your sacrifices, with your faithfulness. But you don't have to know. He's going to take care of that. Your job, just be faithful, just be courageous, just do what you've called to do. The world may think you're a failure for a long time, but it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It matters what God's going to do with that. So I think that's the lesson that I take from Estefanos. So, uh, Reverend Clausen, mm -hmm. uh, since you've been here before, we yes. want to ask you two traditional questions. Oh, boy. And All right. Unlike the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, we can break our traditions. <laughs> so, we have two different ones for you. Okay, what sounds do you great. What do your spare time? And if you could meet anyone from the Middle Ages, who would it be? Oof, what do I do in my spare time? Uh, well, recently, um, I've gotten back into something that I loved as a child. I got back into Legos, like... I'm building Legos again as an adult and, and I love it. Like it's great. So actually if I could take you a tour of my office, I've got like a little Lego castle and like all these other Lego things. 
So yeah, that's my new hobby. And my daughter is three years old. She's still got the Duplos, but we're close. We're so close to upgrading to the real Legos and I can't wait. Um, but yeah, there, there you go. So I'm a Lego maniac again, and I'm loving it. Um, but for your other question, uh, if I can meet anyone from the Middle Ages, who would it be? Um, one of my favorite saints of the Middle Ages is a guy named St. Louis, who the city is named after. And he was a king in France in the 1200s, Louis IX. And to me, he is probably the greatest Christian ruler that ever lived. Like he was all the things that Zaryakov was not. Like he was just and he was kind and he was humble and he was merciful and he was still brave and courageous uh, and all these different things, um, but absolutely committed to Jesus, absolutely wanted to follow him. And um, also a guy that you probably would just want to hang out with. Like everyone who was around him was like, this is a guy who was joyful and fun, who loved his friends, um, but was absolutely committed to the Lord. So there you go. And maybe someday you guys can do an episode on Louis the Ninth. And yes, I have done an episode on him too. Yes. So there you go. Thank you, Reverend Clausen, for uh, agreeing to join us on today's episode about Estefanos and the Ethiopian church. Um, we really appreciate your answers and the time that you put in um, to being here. Um, in conclusion, uh, listeners have an opportunity to win a copy of Simonetta's Carr's book, Church History, which includes information on the church and the Middle Ages. To enter the drawing, submit your questions or comments to questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org. Again, that's questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org. You can also find the link on our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org. And while you're there, while you're there, you'll find some past episodes, special news, recommended readings, and more. And if you would consider making a donation to support the work of the Alliance and podcasts like this one, we'd really appreciate it. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Linus and Lucas, I'm Trindy. Thank you so much for listening to Kids Talk Church History.